Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. This is episode 116 of the podcast, and this one is all about getting prepared for trapping season. So stay tuned. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will Love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. This episode is brought to you by the Hunter's Journey online course and community. Have you ever thought about getting into hunting but don't even know where to begin? Have you ever felt intimidated about getting into it because, well, you don't have people that want to support this exploration of food of yours? Or maybe you grew up in the hunting community but haven't felt connected to the morals and ethics of those that you know who hunt. For the last three years, my good friend Chris Gilmore and I have been running an online hunting course that has grown and blossomed into one of the most beautiful communities that I've ever been involved with. With access to hundreds of hours of videos, both short and sweet, as well as long and detailed, virtual hunt camps and classes, as well as an online growing community, where you can share your experiences, get help with your challenges, and celebrate your successes. The Hunter's Journey is everything I ever wished for in my hunting community. And now it can be your hunting community. To learn more and register, go to www.thehuntersjourney.com. And if you register today, use the promo code DRAGONFLY75, and you can save $75 off of registration. I know Chris and I would both love to have you, and I know the community is excited to join you on your Hunter's Journey. All right, well, this is episode 116, and this is all about preparing for the trapping season. Uh, the time of this recording is October 25th, although the episode is coming out a little bit later than that. I believe it's coming on the 26th, because we've now moved the podcast to Wednesdays, and that's because we're checking out the algorithm. That's what it's saying people want to have, is podcast midweek, not on the weekends. Makes kind of sense if you're driving to work and everything else, or you're doing your lunch break or whatnot. On weekends, you're trying to relax and watch movies and spend time with your family and all that. Kind of, or camping, of course, preferably. Um, so with all that said out of the way, the reason October 25th is important is because in my zone, in my area of Ontario, this is the very first day that you can begin trapping beaver, uh, muskrat, otter, mink, uh, raccoon, of course, has been a little bit longer. Raccoon season opens a little bit earlier in the season, uh, earlier in October, I mean. And... So that's the first thing. It's like, first off, this is the first week of trap and season beginning. So we might as well talk about it there. It's also because we've talked about the ethics of trapping. We've interviewed a trapper, John Godozzi, back in, I believe, our very first year, first season of the tra- of the podcast. Uh, and we've also talked about my relationship with trapping and the things you should know about trapping. I think that was all within the ethics of trapping episode. But we never really dived into the tactics. We never really dove deep into how I trap and what is going through my mind when I'm preparing for trapping. And so that's what I'm doing right now. I don't really trap the first week or so of open season for trapping. Uh, I don't because mainly I find it still too warm. Um, and I've heard people <laughs> say these ridiculous things, not ridiculous. I shouldn't, I should not use the word ridiculous here because it's kind of judgmental on those folks for reasons that are not necessarily their fault because they've heard it from other people. Um, a lot of people will say that trapping season is too early because it's still too warm and the fur is not prime. That's not what makes fur prime. Prime fur happens, I think we've talked about this in the past, happens because of the sun. 
the less sunlight there is, the thicker the fur gets. Uh, usually because, and mainly because, not usually, but mainly because the, the fall equinox happens usually well before it gets really, really cold. And so it gives animals time to actually begin to grow out thick, rich, plush, prime fur. So that they will be warm when they need to be warm in November, December, January, February, March, April. So that's the main reason. And the fur starts to degrade soon after it goes prime because they're using it. They're moving through the bush. They're moving through the ice. They're moving through the wa water. They're shivering. They're uh, cleaning their fur and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm grooming my beard right now or like how a beaver uses that little claw, split claw on their toe on their hind foot to scratch and comb out their fur. Part of that is going to damage some of that prime fur, that under fur or under hair. Uh, my dog is now scratching at the blankets on the couch and trying to make himself more comfortable. Now he's kind of sitting on my lap. Anyways, um, there are two dogs on this couch and there's a cat purring behind my head. So you'll probably hear some activity like him huffing because he can't get it perfect. Tracker, relax, dude. Anyways, prime fur is not based on the cold, but the, uh, preparations for cold of those animals. And so fur bearing mammals start to go prime around just before the equinox and prime usually kicks off about the last week of October, the first week of November, which is right now. This is when fur is very prime. The reason I prefer the cold is because I check my fur, my traps, uh, preferably two times a day. Uh, if they're live traps, I'm checking them at least once every six to 12 hours. Uh, but I don't do a lot of live traps. We do some, and I'll talk about that in a bit, but I mostly trap with kill traps, which means I can check them technically once every 24 hours, but I prefer to check them once every 12 hours, but that's not always possible. Sometimes life gets in the way there's vehicle maintenance. I don't live right where my trap line is. So I've got to travel to my trap line to check everything. Uh, and so a minimum of 24 hours uh, for kill traps that are in the water, we're talking about beaver, of course, and muskrat, otter, mink. Those are all aquatic trapping that I do. And that is mostly done either fully submerged or nearly fully submerged, so like three quarters submerged traps, which means the body will be in the water. And it's not that it's not cold enough in the air right now. Like we're having days, we just had snow up in the gray Bruce County on Thursday of this past week. Uh, <clears throat> so like it's cold out, but right now we've been dealing with a heat wave the last three days. It's been above 19 degrees Celsius for three days. It's like close to the eighties or seventies uh, into the eighties. I'd say seventies. I'm not very good at my transition of Fahrenheit to Celsius and back and forth. But anyways, um, yes, it is getting colder, but the water hasn't gotten colder by much. Um, water is a big heat sink. And so whenever that sun is up there, it's warming that water up. This is the whole premise of climate change and everything else that we have to talk about, uh, that we have to really heavily consider. So when that water is heating up all day long, it holds that heat longer into the night than the ground around it will. Uh, water is very good at holding heat for a long time. So what happens is if you catch a beaver in these temperatures, where it's like 18, 19 degrees at, uh, during the daytime, 20 degrees during the daytime, that water will stay above, you know, 10 degrees well into like two, if you catch the beaver at like sunset, let's say, uh, that water will stay around, you know, 15 to 18 degrees for, you know, 
till two in the morning, three in the morning. And that's just a little too long for me to like it. Uh, I've had, cause I'm, I'm after the beaver and I'm after the muskrats and everybody else for meat and fur. I want both. And I've seen it where it's been like 20 degrees down to 13 degrees for weeks and you go out and set beaver traps and you check it once a day and the fur starts to slip already because it's been in the water that long. The beaver has been in the water that long and microbes are already doing their damage to the fur. That's not a good sign. Uh, with big animals, like, like beaver can get big. My biggest one to date was just under 58 pounds, which is, is not even a jumbo beaver. That's a, that's a decent sized beaver, but that's not a big beaver. That's just a big beaver. It's not a big beaver. You know what I mean? Anyways, those big animals hold a lot of body heat and they have a lot of density to their body. And so being in warm, warm ish water while sitting there with all that heat in their body from caloric intake and caloric burn, they can quickly deteriorate and that's not great. I want fresh meat. I want clean meat. I want healthy meat and I want good fur. So I wait until mm, when I'm seeing a lot of frost, when I'm seeing a lot of frost, like daily I'm seeing frost or I'm even seeing like little bits of ice film on puddles and stuff. That's when I really like to go after my animals, uh, on the trap line. So I usually get a later start than other people because I'm trying to target refrigeration <laughs> of the meat so it doesn't deteriorate, uh, as quickly because I don't use beaver meat as bait very often. I do on occasion, uh, but I use it as meat. I take off the meat off the front quarters, the hind quarters, the back strap, every edible viscera comes off that beaver and becomes food for meat. And then it's the scraps that I put out on the trap line. That's what I put out as bait on the trap line for fisher, raccoons, mink. Um, those are my main animals. There's some other animals that come into the trap line. I sometimes trap them, but those aren't, those are my three main ones. Uh, mink, fisher, and raccoon and beaver. Every animal that's a carnivore in the Canadian forest eat beaver and muskrat. So those are good animals to trap for bait, but I trap them primarily for meat, not for fur and not for bait. Um, and so that's the first thing I want to get out of the way is like, why am I not trapping right now? Why am I just scouting right now? Well, this is why, because now I'm at the prime time of beaver activity, uh, fisher activity, raccoon activity. They're, they're at prime fur. I'm out on the landscape. I'm probably gonna be deer hunting while I'm out there. And I often end up in the ponds and swamp areas when I'm deer hunting. So this gives me opportunities to scout and observe and learn about the animals that I'm trying to trap. So this episode is about my, what's going through my head literally right now, literally as we speak, this is what's been going through my mind all the live long day, all the things I'm trying to get ready, all the things I'm trying to accomplish before we dive deep, deep, deep into the actual trapping, because once trapping begins, it's, it's a career, it's a job. And you've got to be out there and your equipment has to be already tuned up. Your traps already have to be ready to go. All your stuff has to be ready. And you got to know where you're going to be putting these traps. You can't just be wandering out there with a hundred pounds of traps on your shoulders, hoping to see where there's some beaver sign. That's really not what you want to do. You want to scout ahead of time. And so this is my scouting time right now until about maybe the second week of November, I'll be out scouting. I'll be looking at where beaver habitat is. I'll be looking at where raccoons are moving. I'll be looking at where fishers are. I'll be tr tracking, setting up trail cameras, observing 
toilets, uh, toilets being like where uh, raccoons or otters or other animals prefer to defecate. So you'll find those spots where there's a lot of feces. Uh, you'll also find feed plot spots. So like where muskrats have dragged up a bunch of mussels and have consumed them. And you can see piles of sweet flag leaves as well as maybe a little bit of wild rice stock stacked up in one spot. That's a food plotter, food spotter, feed raft. Uh, beaver will build feed rafts. They'll also have their spots where they've chewed trees down and have consumed the branch, uh, dragged the branches into the river, into the lake, into whatever body of water that their den is in to build what's called a food raft or a feed raft. And that'll be their food for the winter. They're stocking under the ice as much food that they don't have to go up above wa ice, uh, above the ice and be exposed to predators. So they're trying to be smart and planning ahead. So with all that said and done, I kind of want to dive into, we've done the episode, the mind of a trapper. This is the mind of Caleb, the trapper, <laughs> I guess is how we can describe this. So, uh, and I've got some notes in front of me just cause it's, you know, late at night, I'm tired and I've been really trying to put all these notes together, A, to do this episode, but B, so I can think about what I got to get ready. So beaver, we're going to start with beaver. Beaver is the primary focus for me this season, partially for their fur, as I said, but mostly for their meat. Due to this though, muskrat are tangential targets as well, but the possibility of otter as well is there. So when you set traps for beaver and any animal, traps, as we've described before, are indiscriminate traps. They're, they're, they're indiscriminate hunters. They cannot be like, oh, a muskrat just came through me, but I'm here for beaver. I shouldn't go for that muskrat. Whatever trips that trigger is going to get hit by that trap. And so... I've had on many occasions where I set for beaver and I've got otter, I've got muskrat. I've caught a mink in a beaver trap once, which was absurd to me how small that little mink was compared to how big that trap was. Somehow that mink got caught. Somehow that mink set off the trap. I still don't understand that. So when I'm setting for beaver, I'm aware that there is these op uh, 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 opportunities of having what's called an incidental, something that you not, not necessarily went after, but you caught it anyways. Now, there are some incidentals in trapping. I think we've talked about this before that are not necessarily something you want to trap. I've caught flying squirrel on my ermine traps before. Uh, I've got a, I have a, I know of a gentleman out in the Canadian East in the Maritimes who caught a moose on coyote snares and had to call in the ministry of natural resources and basically say, I screwed up. This happened. And they went, okay, well, take the snares off the moose and don't touch the body. You are not allowed to take any claim on that animal. That animal can be left out for the coyotes to eat. You can't touch that animal. You don't have a right to that moose. Uh, there's people in places like Wisconsin where they're not allowed to have bobcat and sometimes a bobcat gets caught in their coyote traps. So there's all these kinds of incidentals that we don't want. And then there's the incidentals that I call tangential targets or tangential targets. Uh, that's the same thing. Tangential targets. Um, in, in the case for beaver, that'll be otter, muskrat, maybe mink. So when I'm setting my traps, I'm aware that there's a possibility I'm going to catch one of those instead. So with all that said and done, let's dive into how I begin my scouting. First, I'm going to just go out to where I believe there's beaver. Now, if I have a actual, you know, certified licensed trap line, and if I'm in the Northern regions of the trapping zones, I can have that, uh, I will go to my trap line because that's where I'm supposed to be trapping beaver or whatever other animals I'm supposed to be trapping. That's where, that's where I'm going to go. And once I get there, I'm going to start looking for all this stuff. I'm going to start scouting. 
for us in my zone, it's private property only. So I'm going to go to the private property owners who like having me trap their properties and I'm going to start checking their properties out for beaver. I'm going to start looking for sign of beaver. Uh, the fresh beaver chews. So where a tree has been cut down or saplings have been cut down, you got those little stakes sticking out of the ground or those stumps sticking out of the ground. That's the first good sign, especially if they're very fresh, couple of weeks to a couple of months max. If they're dry, crumbly, rotten looking, there might be beaver there, but if you're not finding any fresh sign, you might not have any beaver in that body of water right there. Doesn't mean you don't, but that's the first, like, that's the first thing I look for is the freshest chewed trees. Then I'm going to look for feed rafts. If, if fresh trees have been brought down, I want to go out on that body of water and I want to look at it. I want to see where the trees have been dragged to. Have they been built into a dam? Have they been built into a, a den or a lodge? Or have they made a food raft or a feed raft? Once I know where the feed raft is, that's going to benefit me later in the winter time when I'm setting my winter traps. This episode is all about the fall trapping and to an extent spring trapping. They're very, very similar. Basically whenever there's open water, if you have frozen water, beaver trapping changes. There's a lot of things you got to do that's different. It's not my forte. It's not my favorite. I prefer to trap them now and in the spring than in the winter time, but it's doable and something we'll talk about in a later episode. We're just going to focus on fall trapping right now because that's what's on my mind. So once we find the feed rafts, I know where I'm kind of looking for dens. Uh, a lot of the beaver in my area don't build, uh, open water dens, which are the classic beaver lodge that everybody sees. A lot of the beaver in my area bank den, they actually bore up into the, uh, from the water up into the mud of river banks of, uh, dikes and other man-made bodies, uh, land bodies that, that go into the water, um, lake shores, mucky swamp edges. That's where we find beaver dens a lot is up inside the bank, not necessarily out in open water. So I'm going to look for aquatic dens first, see if there's any out there, especially if I find a feed raft. If I find a spot where there's a bunch of live trees that have been cut and shoved into the mud in the water where just the tips of their branches are sticking out in a big area, I'm going to start looking around there first for the aquatic dens, the classic beaver lodge. And if I don't see that, I immediately start looking for bank dens. Bank dens are a little harder to find, but if you keep your eye out, you can see them first. Um, you're going to see that there's a little bit more disturbed mud on the bank there because they're coming in and out and sometimes walking up on top onto the shore and stuff. So they're just dredging mud around with them. The second part is if you look into the water, a lot of these ponds where you find beaver, they're very silty bottomed, muddy bottomed, but there's gravel or clay or something underneath. There's a substrate underneath that silt. And where beaver come out of their dens, they usually hit the bottom running. Like they don't just swim out, they kind of barge out. And because of that, they kind of impact the bottom. And so sometimes for a foot, six inches, three feet, sometimes four feet, depending on what the water is like there, you might look straight down and see gravel in just a strip of line that's like three, maybe six inches wide going out six inches to three feet to five feet, 10 feet, who knows how shallow the water is there. And they kind of just dredge the bottom as they come in and out of their den. And that's the first sign I look for when I get, when I'm looking for bank dens is I'm looking for those spots where they're just popping out and making ruckus on the bottom of the, of the pond. Uh, that's my main giveaway. Come winter when there's ice, it's a lot easier. You look for where the bubbles are. You look for where there's a bunch of bubbles in the ice and that's where your bank den is. No problem, straightforward. We're talking fall still, right? So I'm looking for 
the bottom. I'm looking for the very bottom of the pond, right out of the bank. And as I walk along the shore, I'm looking for those spots where I can see gravel or clay or a different, um, medium other than the silty mud. That's usually at the bottom of the pond. So from there, I start looking for choke points and that could be where there's a peninsula of mud and other refuse, uh, natural material, trees growing into the pond or into the swamp that then stop about a couple of feet away from some cattails or wild rice patch or something, or another, uh, natural body of land in the water. And then now you have, instead of a 20 foot or 50 foot wide body of water, you have a three foot wide body of water. And when the beaver move through there, that's a good spot to set a trap because you know, they're going to get funneled through that spot to get to the other parts of the water. So choke points are a big point. Part of choke points is also their crossover spots. Sometimes they don't necessarily cut all the trees down right along the shore, right where they're living. Sometimes they'll travel a little inland and get some saplings, get some preferred trees, whether that's poplar, basswood, alder, um, sugar maples, if they can find them, box elders I've seen get cut down by them and they bring those back to the pond and they drag those in. So you'll find these spots where the beaver do what's called crossover. They're moving from one body of water to another body of water. They're moving from body of water to a, a forested woodlot area, uh, whatever it may be. You're looking for those specific locations. Okay. That's what you want to catch them at. And those are your choke points. Beyond that, what are the things I'm using to help me scout these beaver? What am I using to benefit me in the catching of the animals? There's a lot of things. The first thing is if you're on private property, like I am, trail cameras can be a great friend and you can find really, really inexpensive trail cameras. If you look around, um, for trapping, it's not as important in my eyes as like high quality deer hunting ones where you're trying to count every tine of the antler or you want to know everything about the biology of that specific deer or your population of deer. All I want to know is where are the beaver moving? Where am I seeing them? Where do I theorize they're going? And can I prove that hypothesis correct or not? Right? I have a hypothesis that the beaver are moving to this choke point where there's a bunch of alders and fur growing into the swamp and kind of making this massive peninsula that goes out 17 feet into the water. And it's only a 20 foot wide pond. So that spot, it might be where they cross over on the land, or they're going through that open water. That's three feet wide. I don't know which one they're like, I'm seeing tracks at both spots. Like where's the most active spot to set traps. Maybe I only have a few conibear traps or maybe I only have a couple of days to trap beaver this year. Okay. Let's put a trail camera up. Let's put a couple of trail cameras up and let's see how many beaver we count crossing over or swimming through. And that's a great way of using a trail camera. I think trail cameras are good in that way. So you don't need high end top of the line, you know, with the Wi-Fi cell phone connection where they, you're getting live feeds directly from the pond and you got solar panels hooked up to it. I like, I use Ape Man brand trail cameras and I'm not endorsing them. I'm not saying that they're the best. They're just what I use because they were 40 or $50 a pop and I wanted like half a dozen and I had 300 bucks max to spend. So they lined up perfectly for what I needed. So trail cameras are great, uh, especially on private property. I would not, if you're public 
on a public land, whether it's treaty land, crown land, everyone describe it, or your state side, if you're on state land, public land, whatever it may be, I would be less inclined to put up a trail camera because there's a better chance of it walking away. Someone, I don't know what it is with people when they see someone else's trail camera, they feel like I should take that. I don't know what it is, whether they're doing nefarious things out in the woods and they don't want evidence, or they're just like, I'll use that trail camera. That's mine now. It, it's theft. I don't think it's really cool. I think it's really uncool people to do. Anyways, um, other things I'll bring with me, binoculars, a canoe, waders, and even drones. None of this is out of the question when it comes down to scouting potential beaver trapping locations. If you're using a drone, make sure you're legal and licensed in regions that require that. Some parts of the world don't need you to have a flight license or a, uh, a drone license or have to follow certain protocols to fly it. Others say under a certain weight limit, you don't need the license. Others say that you need them, period. You just need the license. Make sure you're legal with what you're doing. Okay. I don't want you getting in trouble, getting caught by, I don't know, uh, whoever it is in, uh, in charge of enforcing those kinds of things. And you being like, well, Caleb Musgrave from the Canadian Bushcraft podcast said, I use drones legally to scout large bodies of water. And then I bring them back in. And once I've found where those sites are, I go out to them with my canoe, or if I can walk to them, I'll walk to them with my waders in my hands. Um, those are the main things I'm going to use for scouting is binoculars. I carry Vortex 8x42s. Uh, I think the diamond brand, uh, diamondback, uh, models, Anyways, uh, those, a canoe is nice if you're on open water, if you're on a little creek or you're doing like ditch side or roadside trapping, you don't really need the canoe. Uh, your best bet is probably a pair of waders. And I will always recommend to people, I know hip waders are just, you know, a little easier to put on and off. And I know they look a lot, they're a lot less burdensome to a lot of people. Get a pair of chest waders. Just get them. You never know when you're going to fall into a deeper pocket than you were expecting in that creek. And now your crotch is soaked and your chest, your belly is soaked and now you're cold. Get a pair of chest waders. Um, I will endorse high and dry brand, high and dry with an N in the middle, high and dry waders. Um, I've had mine for going on three seasons now and they've not needed any seam sealing. They've not needed any massive repairs uh, or patching which is unheard of in waders, in my opinion. And I'm also, uh, a very, very big footed person. You could describe me as Sasquatch from the ankle down if you wanted to. Um, I'm a 15 wide in American and Canadian measurements. So most boots that are on those waders are excruciatingly painful to wear for me, even size 15s. Cause there's rarely any company that makes a 15 wide. Guess what? High and dry makes 15 wide. They also make stout sized for big guys like me. So it's perfect. Um, a lot of people describe me as a six foot tall Gimli or a short Hagrid. So thinking about that, uh, picture those kinds of guys in a pair of waders, high and dry has waders for them. So I do highly recommend anybody that's getting into trapping and, and all in general being on the land a lot, you should get a pair of good chest waders. You never know when you're going to need them, whether it's, you know, going smelting like me and Rye did with our friend Kaylee and of course, Chris Gilmore from the Hunter's Journey and Chris Outdoors, or you're going out picking like wheat care, which is sweet flag or air, um, rat root, and you just don't want to get completely soaked. Uh, or you're going duck hunting. You know what? Like I... Now, even in like a motorboat or on a dry land blind, I go duck hunting almost exclusively in my waders. 
because you never know when you're going to dunk into the water. You never know. I don't even know people that take waders for deer hunting nowadays because it's blocking in scent. The waders can be nice and mucky and you can kind of crawl and belly crawl through some really mucky, gross stuff. And A, you're clean and B, you're not dragging your scent everywhere because the waders are waterproof. Therefore, they're also to an extent scent proof. Um, I'm not that extreme. I'll stick to my good hunting pants, but anyways, waders are something I think is very, very important for anybody who's going to be doing this kind of stuff. Beyond that, uh, from things from scouting, we got to start preparing our actual equipment. So the main piece of equipment is the trap itself. Uh, I use pretty much exclusively Conibear body grip traps. Um, I use one tens, one sixties and three thirties, almost exclusively three thirties for beaver. Um, I'll use one sixties for muskrat, one tens for muskrats, one sixties and one tens for mink. Uh, but I, if I'm targeting beaver, I use three thirties. Um, they're my preference. They need to be treated to prevent rust, but also to help kind of blend them into the environment. Some people claim it helps kill the scent. Maybe. Um, it could potentially kill the scent of steel, uh, and rusty metal, but you also want to make sure it's mostly your scent you're trying to protect because beavers and other animals walk and swim by human garbage full of rust all the time. And you won't see them like avoiding the garbage. So I don't think it's the smell of rusty metal. I think it's the smell of human on there. So we've got other things we've got to do. We'll talk about in a bit on that, but. There's a lot of different ways to prevent the rust, uh, but also help them blend into the environment. There's a lot of options. I've used all of these options. I have my methods that we'll describe afterwards. So these are the six that I've used and I've seen other people use logwood, which is a chemical compound that comes from, uh, specific hardwoods from South America, I believe that you can buy at most trapper supplies and even places like Cabela's and Bass Pro shop in their trapping sections, which I don't recommend going into a Cabela's or another big box store to get your trapping supplies. Look for actual professional trapping supplies. You're gonna have a lot more variety and you're gonna see a lot better prices, but logwood is a chemical pigment that you can buy that you mix with water, uh, of a certain temperature. And then you basically boil your traps with it and it comes in, you rinse them off and it's ready to rock. Paint. Paint is another method. You take mineral spirits, or methyl hydrate, um, uh, any denatured alcohol basically that can thin the paint. And you do basically a 50, 50 of brown, uh, late I've used oil paints and latex paint. I've preferred the latex paint. Um, basically your rust-oleum, uh, you want a rust specific paint that's going to bond to rusty metal. Um, you can paint them green. You can paint them brown. You can paint them white for winter time. I'm if I'm going to paint, I usually go with a brown because I find browns blend into most environments. Green doesn't always blend into most environments or all environments and white blends in with even less. So I prefer with just going with a straight brown, like it's just a, just a muddy brown color. Uh, you mix them together thoroughly and then you dip your traps and pull them out and let them drip dry. And then you hang them separately from each other. Uh, and let them dry further. And some people will even, as they're drying, put on a pair of gloves and work the jaws to make sure that nothing gets kind of too tacky 
Uh, and then the mineral spirits act as a drying agent, and dry the paint faster while also thinning it. So it's actually th just a very thin coating. You're not going to get big globule stuff. So that's how a lot of people do it. Some people even spray paint them. That's fine too. If you want to go with spray paint, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, I don't go with paint as much anymore because I had uh, gotten a few ermine in my 110 Conna Bears and those ermine got paint stains on them. The, the paint was chipping or flaking or something in the situation. And I had these brown bars on my ermine pelts and it just looked bad to me. So I just don't use it anymore. Uh, and then we have tannin rich plant material. So walnut hulls are very popular. Oak bark is very well known. Sumac bark, lesser known. Hemlock tree bark, my preference, because we have a lot of it in my area. A lot of them got blown down by that derecho back in the summertime. So I have a lot of access to hemlock bark. Uh, any of these tannin rich plants, and there's a whole lot of others out there that you can experiment with. Regardless of which one you go with, you're going to need to allow the traps to rust a little bit before you apply them. Same with the Rust-Oleum paint, same with the logwood. And you'll understand in a moment why. So what I do is to let them rust lightly, just lightly. You just want to surface rust. Uh, I force rust on new traps by degreasing them with methyl hydrate or other denatured alcohol, and then let that dry, and then repeatedly spraying them down with a vinegar and water, like a 50-50 vinegar water solution, uh, until the whole surface is rusty. So I'll spray them, uh, come back in like 10, 15. If there's spots that aren't rusty yet, I spray in those spots again, leave for 10, 15, make a coffee, whatever, come back. And once the whole surface of every square centimeter of that trap is rusty, we're ready to go to the next stage. So older traps, uh, honestly, if you've got older traps that you've used in the past, or you bought off somebody, chance are you don't actually have to do this. You don't have to force a rust on them. That's mostly just a new trap that you bought right out of a store. Um, you're probably going to, with older traps, just need to clean and dry them and then you can begin dying. So I prefer tree bark as I have a lot of them available. Mentioned that earlier already. Uh, hemlock is the, my, my most current, uh, available one. I have a lot of sumac in my area and I've used it as well. Um, I'll first gather about 20 pounds of bark in a large pot. So I'll go out for a couple hours and I'll just peel bark off of dying trees, dead trees, down trees. If it's sumacs, I'll chop them down completely and just strip the bark off them, uh, because they coppice back very regularly. If it's a hemlock, not so much. Uh, and I'll put them all into a large pot over a fire, turkey fryer. And then I fill this completely with water and allow it to simmer for an hour. I fill it right to the brim and I let it begin to boil and simmer down. And after an hour, it drops by about three to in, three to four inches. If I'm lucky, if it's good, if it's got a good boil going, uh, I then remove all the bark and that drops the water level even further. And then I begin submerging traps in batches. I'll do my one tens, my one sixties and my three thirties. Uh, again, with beaver, almost exclusively three thirties with the smaller traps, I boil batches of a dozen and with the big traps, it may be one at a time or batches of five, depending on the size of the pot I have. I boil each batch for about 10 minutes and then hang them to dry. That's it. I just let them boil in that hemlock bark or that tannin rich water, whatever it may be for about 10 minutes. And then I just pull them out, let them drip dry. And then I hang them in their batches on nails off of a, off of a barn or off of a line, whatever I've got with carabiners or wire, whatever. The iron on the steel trap goes to a chemical reaction with the tannin from the bark solution and makes a ferric tannin bond. So this is what some people describe as forcing patinas. Um, 
this type of forest patina is much more durable than what you see people doing with their knives. Unless you're going with like ferric chloride or an actual like heavy, strong acid. Um, this is basically the same thing. You're forcing a patina without the acid in this situation. Iron and tannin, when they bond with this ferric tannin bond, um, it's the reason when you do like bark tanning hides, you don't want to do it in a steel container. You want to do it in something like plastic or wood because if there's any rust and your hide touches that rust, it's going to have a black spot. It's going to have a black spot that you'll never get rid of. It'll be there and it'll be, you can kind of, you know, build it up as a character point on your hide. But like at the end of the day, you got a black spot on your hide for my folks. So with traps, the beautiful thing is we want that to happen. So we get them rusty. And then as soon as they're rusty, we put them into this tannin rich solution and boil them in under heat, the tannin bonds to the iron and creates a new, uh, compound that is basically a patinaed oxidation that is very dark. Um, and it is very durable for, and for natural material, it's fairly long lasting. Um, it doesn't last forever, but it'll definitely prevent rust and it'll prevent being obvious to the animals for a season. So for my fall trapping, it'll be great. And then come winter, probably around freeze up, I'll have to pull all my traps. I got to pull them anyways, cause they're going to get frozen in the ice. Uh, I got to pull them out and then I got to probably retreat them cause they're probably gonna be just starting to get rusty again. Uh, and then I may have to do that again at breakup when I pull my traps all out of the ice and then get ready for spring trapping. I may have to do it again, but it's a really easy process that isn't really requiring a lot of maintenance and it's not, it, it's affordable is my biggest thing. It's like I can go and drop a bunch of sumacs peel their bark, boil the crap out of that, throw my rusty traps in there and I'm done. If I use paint or logwood, we're adding a, um, potential staining. And even with these, with, with tannins, you got to rinse your trap off before you go take them out on the trap line. Like I'll basically, once they've dried and the tannin and, and uh, rust have bonded, I take them to my trap line and dunk them in the lake, dunk them in the swamp and scrub them a little bit. And then they're ready to work. You can't really do that with paint and you can't easily, you can do that with logwood, but not paint. So be mindful of that tannin rich organic matter. You can kind of wash off any residue and your traps will be catching clean and they're not going to be messing up your try your trapped animals, but they do require a little bit more maintenance, but it's also free. I can go and get, you can go and find walnut trees in downtown Toronto who've dropped a bunch of walnuts, collect all their hulls and boil the crap out of that. And guess what you have? A tannin rich solution that you can boil your traps. And if you live in central Ontario, north central Ontario, you're going to find oak trees. You can shave the bark off of, or hemlock trees. You can shave the bark off of, of dead trees or falling down trees and, and use that, maintain that with that. It's a, it's a great way to do it. In my opinion, it's affordable. And yeah, you got to do it on a more regular basis. Once every couple of months, once every three months, who cares that that's easy. You got to take your traps out and do maintenance on them. Anyways, you might as well just retreat them. So that's the main thing I say. <clears throat> so yeah, this is affordable and easy to do because I'm switching up tactics anyways at those times. Uh, and then I need to do maintenance on the traps anyways. On the note of maintenance, uh, check your traps on a regular basis. Even if they've been out there for a couple of weeks and haven't caught anything, check on them. They might 
have had some damage from the weather, from extreme cold. Sometimes steel just breaks. You got to check on those things, especially if a trap has caught an animal. Maybe the steel wire or cable you use to attach the trap to a, to an anchor point has gotten damaged. Maybe the whiskers that are on the trigger mechanism have broken. Maybe the springs have gotten warped or damaged from the animal thrashing. You don't know until you look. So I check over all my trap springs, trap safety catches, and the trigger mechanisms, period. I have to check on them. And then anything faulty is replaced outright. I don't try to jerry-rig traps. And I've seen people do this, where they're like, oh, it's got a bent spring, but you know, like if we just kind of bend it back a little bit, it might, no. Get that, take that spring off, remove it completely, and replace it. Oh, the trap safeties are a little weak. If I just kind of shove it a little tighter in this spot, it'll hold. No, get them off and replace them or tighten them in your pro with the right tools and then put them back on. Don't, do not goof around with this. Um, yeah. It's asking for trouble. And I've seen it happen so many times. And I'll be honest, I've done it on a couple of occasions myself and I got burned because of it. I got a trap closed on my hand because of it. I've had animals get maimed because of it. It's, it's not something that I approve of. It's not something now in my, like if I could stop myself back then from doing that, I would do it in a heartbeat. The amount of remorse and regret I have from horrible moments like that. Do not try to make it, don't try to improvise. Don't try to, you know, just make it work. Replace it outright. If you're going to be trapping, let's say we want to put like 10 traps out. I buy 15 traps. So that if I find one out there that's acting faulty, I pull it and I replace it. And then I take it home and I try to fix it or I replace the parts that are damaged. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got some notes here on a few things I've seen. Um, if the springs are bent, warped or otherwise damaged, replace them or retire the trap. And I know some folks will take a broken spring off of a 330 and use that 330 as a single spring for otters and large muskrats or small beaver. Uh, in some areas, this is not legal. And personally, I find it kind of sketch. Uh, so I just don't do it. I just don't do that. I'll retire it for the season or replace the spring later when I have the time. Whiskers on the trigger are made from really stiff wire. So the whiskers, when we're looking at a body grip trap, you have the, the body, the square, you have the springs, you have the trigger mechanism, and then there's these two wires that stick out and that's the actual trigger. That's what actually makes contact with the animal. They're called whiskers. Uh, whiskers on the trigger are made from stiff wire and are usually the first part of a trap to fail. They're, they're, they're made of wire and they rust out fast. And also they could work hardened from animals breaking into them and smacking into them and the trap closing hard. They can get work hardened from being bent again and again and again, and then just break from repeated use. Have the tools and materials to replace these on hand in your workshop or your skinning shack and even in your trapping bag or your truck. It's better to be overprepared for a situation like a snapped whisker than hope for the best and start trying to improvise on the fly. Don't do that. Don't jerry-rig. Fix the trap proper or replace the trap outright. I cannot say this enough. You will save yourself injuries and you will save the animal maim, potentially a long, painful, arduous, suffering while they wait for you to come and kill them. We don't want that. 
we do not want that. So that's my main rant on um, maintenance of the traps. Let's get into other aspects of trapping. So equipment for trapping. Always, always, always have trap setters and a trap safety. I don't care how strong your grip is. I don't. Hell, most of the time I set my springs by hand. I set most of my 330 conibears by hand. And a lot of trappers I know do that as well because it's just faster and simpler and easier. Because you're in the spot, it's hard to now stand up and grab the setters and get everything levered and into position. It's it, it's just a pain in the ass. So setting by hand is often the preference. That's not my issue here. If you get your damned hand caught in a trap, you're going to want trap setters nearby, right? And and frankly, even if you follow every safety protocol there is, there is still a chance for getting caught during a fluke or moment of stupidity. It's the same reason we carry a first aid kit whenever we bring a knife around. It's the same reason we tell someone where we're going when we head to the bush for camping, hiking, or hunting, because risk management is key to a long, healthy life in the woods. So please, please just bring your trap safety with you every time. Bring a hand, uh, bring a pair of trap setters and keep them beside you while you're setting or goofing around with your traps in any way, shape, or form. Please, please for me, folks. Beyond that, uh, <laughs> that's another rant of tonight. Uh, beyond that, I bring 14 or 16 gauge black wire and I bring a whole spool of it. I don't just bring a couple little pieces. I bring a whole spool. Uh, I bring wire cutters, obviously. I bring my waders. We already talked about that for scouting, but I also, of course, I'm going to bring them out for when I'm trapping. I'm also going to bring a probing rod, uh, which is a piece of rebar for me, or if it's winter time or I got ice on the ground, it's my ice chisel. Uh, <clears throat> if I don't have those, or if you don't have those, or you forgot to bring them, a uh, freshly cut cedar pole will work just fine. Probing rod is when you find a den and you can't actually see all the bottom of it. You can't see the entirety of it because you don't want to stick your head underwater. You take a pole of some sort and start to probe up into the den a little bit. Not all the way up to actually harass the animals, but you just want to get an idea with your fingers, with your hands, almost like a, uh, um, a stick, uh, a walking stick for those who are legally blind. Um, is a good example of what I'm trying to think of, but basically you want to use your hands and fingers with that probe to kind of get a feel in your mind, a mental map of what's going on inside the den to the entrance to where you're going to set your trap. And this is going to help you dictate where your trap gets set. Okay. Um, spare pair of boots and socks back in your vehicle, whether it's your ATV, a backpack, uh, a truck, cause you never know when you're going to get a bad soaker and it gets cold. Just have a spare pair of boots. If I'm wearing my waders, I've got a pair of muck boots and a pair of spare wool socks, a spare pair of wool socks up at my ATV or in my backpack on the ATV, uh, just immediately. Cause I'm wearing my boots out there in my jeans. And then I get out to the trap line, swap out of my boots into my waders, get into the swamp, get a soaker, or I tear my, my waders. I want to get into warm boots and I want to be able to still work. So rubber boots kind of get me by. Uh, beyond that, I have heavy leather gloves for handling the traps when I'm setting traps and everything else like that and cutting stuff. I want to be able to protect my hands. Uh, but I also bring a pair of nitrile or rubber shoulder length gloves so that a, I stay warm when I'm messing around in the water. I like to have long, like all the way up to the shoulder, the veterinarian looking gloves. Um, 
for that reason. So I'm going to be messing around in the muck and stuff, dragging muck for all these trap sets and everything else we're going to get into. Uh, but I want to have those for that, but also so I can, again, prevent my scent. When I carry my traps to the trap line, I've got them in a big Ziploc bag that is full of cedar boughs and pieces of willow bark and other um, aromatic plant material that are not my body or my dogs or anything else that can give a scent of predator to the trap. And then when I get out there, I'm going to wear gloves when I'm, man when I'm man uh, managing the traps. Um, beyond that, I will also bring my trap calls or lures, which are scents, are, are, are like caster for beaver, um, fish oil for raccoons. We'll talk about fish oil in a bit. Uh, and I'm going to bring something to carry my traps in. So if I'm doing shoreline or bank sets only, this could be a pack basket or a milk crate strapped to my ATV. So a pack basket on my back or a milk crate actually like zip tied to my ATV full of traps. Uh, if I'm going out in open water, it's going to be probably going to be in my canoe or my boat. That's where I'm going to be carrying all my stuff. So that's the gear for the most part outside, like a first aid kit, uh, a way to, a survival kit at all times, of course, ways to signal for help or get a hold of people for help, all that kind of stuff. Flashlight is also something I'd recommend. A headlamp is my preference. So I have both hands free when I'm fiddling with traps and it's getting later in the day, in the day into dusk or early morning when I'm going out to check my traps. So with that all the way, let's dive into our sets, our trap sets. Trap sets are how you're going to set up your traps. That's what it means. And so there's a lot of different ways. There's not just one way to do it. There's a dozen to 30 different ways to set up traps. I'm just opening a water bottle. If you hear a weird zip sound. And learning as many trap sets as you can is going to allow you to improvise when you get to a new spot with new situations. I have a book here. Even though I'm going to depend on like, I'm just going to be describing like four types of sets today, maybe five, um, on this episode for beaver, not too many for raccoon. I'm not going to dive too much into muskrat, but I'm going to describe a couple. But if you want to like, again, I know 15 to 20 different beaver sets, but I use usually three, if not four and at most four different sets, but that's because there might be a situation where I have to improvise or not necessarily improvise, but not use the sets that I'm used to using. It's just not conducive. Maybe I have a deep walled creek that's really, really steep sided wall. So I can't do a bank set. Maybe I'm in a spot where it's too deep of water to do my regular bank sets. And it's just, that's where the beaver activity is out in the water. They're not seeming to come to shore. Um, maybe I have no obvious indication of where the dens are, but I know where their feed rafts are, uh, not their feed raft, but where they've been coming to get poles or I've seen some tracks in the mud. There's a great book out there. Um, that I was turned on to by, I believe my buddy, Jim Knapp, who I really want to get on the podcast, but I don't know if he would be, I don't know if he would like the podcast for that, but anyways, um, he turned me on to this book years ago and it's called the Scandinavian fur trapper and hunter's manual by J S Opdal, J S Opdal being John S Opdal, I believe from Norway. Uh, I believe he's originally from Norway. And it's a phenomenal book uh, because it covers trappers from all over Northern Europe, parts of Siberia, and the United States. 
And so there's a lot of people sharing their information in this book. And there's a ton of different beaver sets, mink sets, fisher sets, you name it. He's talking about it in this book. It's an amazing book. There's not, they're not too expensive either. I had an original copy that disappeared. I don't know where it went. I had it for years. I loved it. Jim turned me onto it like in 2016, I believe. And I had it for like three, four years. And then just around the beginning of the pandemic, it just went missing. And then my friend Jesse got me this second copy that I'm holding in my hand and smacking with my hand lovingly, um, patting the book more than smacking it. This is a phenomenal book. This is one of the best. And I'll read the title out again. Scandinavian Fur Trapper and Hunter's Manual, A Life's Work Gathered Between Two Covers, which is a great little aside on there, by John S. Opdahl. O-P-D-A-H-L. O-P-D-A-H-L. John S. Opdahl. The Scandinavian Fur Trapper and Hunter's Manual. It's how many pages and he's got stuff in here on like how to like tether horses how to tie your uh your dog's mouth shut so you can cut their nails at the trap line at the trapper's cabin and not get bit there's like 480 plus pages in this book of information it's absolutely amazing so in there there's tons of different beaver sets so i want to make that very clear there's a lot of different ways to trap animals all these animals but you're going to find the ones that work for you in your environment. And they're the ones you're going to depend on. The most common one and my main one for setting, uh, for, uh, traps, uh, for my main set for trapping beaver in both spring and fall is a caster mound set. Uh, the caster mound set is set on the shore near where I see beaver activity. Sometimes I'll use what's called an H bracket, which is an, a welded bracket in the shape of the letter H that you set your trap, your conibear into, and it holds it steady as you drive the lower bars, the lower legs of the H into the muck. And that stabilizes, or I'm using local brush, whatever I use, it needs to be solid. It needs to be secure. That trap can't have any loose wiggleness to it. It has to be firmly planted into the ground. Um, I try, I try to have it mostly submerged, not fully, um, and this all comes down to what your legal situation is. Some places, all body grip traps in the water must be completely underwater. Where I am, my trap, my, as long as my traps are 330 or other size traps, depending on what size you're talking about, they can be on bare land. They can be on open land. It doesn't matter. Um, I try to keep mine about three quarters of, uh, three quarters of their, of their height underwater because I'm trying to bring the beaver up to my trap. And so I want their head up. I want them coming towards me. I don't want too much in their way. I want them going straight at my trap. And that's how I like to set it. So I put it three quarters of the way into the water. So let's say the trap is, I can't remember how tall a conibear is. Let's say it's 12 inches tall. Let's, let's take that down to 10 inches. I will submerge until only two to three inches of the top of the trap is sticking out of the water. If it's a, that, that's how I prefer to do it for this kind of set. We'll talk about other ways of using a conibear in a minute, but this is how I prefer to do it for this kind of trap. Um, everything to the left and right of the trap between the open water and where I'll be putting the mound up on shore must be blocked off. I do not want an animal coming into the trap from an awkward angle. And I do not want the animal getting to the caster mound before they hit that trap. Um, 
it, it has to be blocked off. This encourages the animal to go where the path of least resistance is. And if you did your job, that path of least resistance is right where your trap is. I try to keep the brushing as natural as possible. The fencing that you're going to be making. I don't want to just put up a bunch of upright sticks all the way along. It looks very unnatural and beavers are aware. Beavers are not stupid. They're smart animals. They're very smart. They're social animals. They have language. They, they communicate. They have a lot of complex conversations. Um, I just want it to look natural as possible. If this is near their dams or dens, I'll use the cut poles that are refuse that they left behind. So if it's out around their den or their dam or their lodge, and I see a bunch of sticks everywhere, I'll just use those because they're used to having those around those areas. Um, if I'm out on open, uh, open shoreline where I haven't seen a lot of beaver activity per se, like there's not a lot of dens and dams and lodges and feed rafts, but I know there's beaver activity from what I'm seeing. Maybe I've seen a couple of beaver there already that day, whatever it may be. I might just cut down a conifer tree that's long enough to make my fence and then clear a few branches off the trunk where the trap is going to be and make sure the boughs are dense everywhere else so that the beaver don't try to just push through it. Whatever fence you make, make it natural and something they're used to. Now I scrape up a pile right from the trap to the, uh, to the bank, to the shore. And I scrape up a good thick pile of muddy, silty stuff from the bottom of the pond. I want a nice mound, maybe three to two, three to four inches tall, but fairly large. About the width, as, as wide as your hand can spread. That should be how big this mound is. And on this, I take a broken twig, I stick it into my beaver lure, which in, for beaver, I use caster. Uh, most people do, but some people do little mixes and recipes and stuff. I don't. My, my beaver lure is one, uh, for every, basically a one-to-one -one ratio of ground up dried beaver gland, beaver caster gland and glycerin. So if I have a cup of ground up beaver caster gland, I have one cup of glycerin. I mix them together. Other people use Vaseline or petroleum jelly. That's fine too. They will work just as well. I actually like the petroleum jelly more than the glycerin now that I've used it a couple of times. So I might be swapping out my recipe for that. Um, where was I? Uh, take a broken stick, stick it into the lure, get it all over the end of the broken stick. And then I set that onto my mount. Some people will just lay it right across. Others will stick it in like a flag. Your choice. I've seen both work. The main thing that needs to be mindful though, is that the mound has to be close to the water and as close to your trap as you can get it on land. The trap shouldn't be on land. Remember you want three quarters of it submerged, but the mound should be as close to that trap as you can get it without leaving the shore. And it should be low, no more than three or four inches tall, but definitely not up on the bank, not up on the mainland, not up on shore. Um, further up on shore, and I've seen beaver bypass the trap set altogether and simply trash your caster mound and return to the water. The closer that caster mound is to the water, the better, period. That's just a fact. That's just how it is. So... Caster is how we bring in beaver. Beaver are very territorial. So if you bring in the caster of a different beaver, you are going to piss them off and they're going to come barging in and trying to figure it out. I've literally seen them race in. Like I've set a trap, put the caster mound up, put the caster on it, got up to my ATV, look back and there's a 30, 40 pound beaver racing for my trap because they caught whiff of it when they were just coming out of their den and they don't like it. So they come racing in. So 
that's why I use the cast around set also because I usually trap near shallow water and fairly small ponds. It makes the most sense for me to just do caster mounds for the most part. There are three other types of traps I use, uh, and we'll get into them in a second. I'm just going to take a sip of water because we're trying to record this all in one take for reasons I can't explain. I just decided we're going to do this all in one take. Creek sets. So we just talked about a shoreline caster mount set. Creek sets are a little bit different. Creeks are where beaver are moving from one body of water to another, or maybe they're living on that creek. That could be a very deep creek. That could be a creek. That could be a stream. That could be a small river. That could be a river. Whatever you want to describe it as. On small creeks that are, let's say, knee deep, maybe a little bit deeper, but not more than 20 feet across, you've got a lot of work. you got a lot to work with there. On really big rivers, I still go back to the caster mound set. I don't try to trap the whole river. If it's like 100 feet across or 30 feet across, 50 feet across, whatever it may be, 20 feet deep, 10 feet deep, I don't mess around. I don't try to get out there and try to find where all the beaver spots are going to be. I'm not going to try and find all the little oxbows and all that kind of stuff. I just look for where there's beaver sign and I do my bank or shoreline caster mound. But on those creeks, those small creeks where beaver can just happen to be, um, that is where we can do what's called creek sets. And there's a few different types. My favorite is you find where there's a natural choke point. We were talking about choke points earlier. Look for where there's been a bunch of debris deposited, whether it's brush or logs, and then find the outside of that. Find where there's a, a, a fast moving part of the body of water uh, around all that debris, and you're going to set a pole right across it, right to the other shore or to the other brush pile, whatever it may be that's making this choke point. And it's not a beaver dam. We don't want to set on a beaver dam because they'll just repair the beaver dam and often mess up your traps and then get trap smart because they set the trap off and they get curious about what that was and they look at it and they now know that that's a trap. What we're looking for is the natural narrow of the creek that's maybe a couple of feet wide. Okay. Let's say three, three feet wide, like just three feet wide and a spot like that, you can put this pole across, you can actually bend the springs because the springs on a con bear are, are articulating. You can, you can turn them up or down on the body, um, turn them up or away from the trap, try the trap trigger and thread them over the pole and a, that's going to make the pole uh, hang it perfectly in the right spot, but B it's going to be locked on the, that beaver is not going to be able to go anywhere without that pole. And that pole is fixed into the bank and into your brush pile that's naturally occurring on your choke point. Or if the, the creek just narrows, you have two, the bank is only three feet across from each other. You're, you're golden. You're, you're golden. You're set in the right spot. And so looking at a spot like that, we can string it across and then brush in a little bit or put two conibears on there. Like there's nothing saying you can't put two traps on the same spot. And the beautiful thing about this setup is beaver are not inclined to dive right down to the bottom when they come across an obstruction in the water. If there's a pole across the water surface, they're just going to dip down like eight inches and that puts them right in line with your trap. Four, six inches, eight inches deep. They're going to go down, hit that trigger and bam, the trap catches them. And if you've set that pole into the, into the bank well, or you drive it into the mud, 
it's not going to move. And some people can mess around with the creek sets. There's a lot of other types of creek sets you can do. Again, this is all just talking about conifers. We're not talking about long springs. We're not talking about um, coil spring traps. We're talking about just conibears on this because that's what I use exclusively. I I rarely use um, footholds. I, I don't really like using them. I think I've talked about that in the past where, yes, the mammalian diving reflex and how the beaver, when they dive and they get stressed, it's not like they're going to hold their breath for 20 minutes like everybody claims because the beaver are stressed. So what happens is the oxygen and the carbon dioxide in their body reverse and the CO2 gets into their bloodstream and they slip into unconsciousness within seconds, like 30 seconds to a minute, they're unconscious and then they relax their body and they open their mouth and they drown. But I just don't like them. <laughs> that's, that's all it is. I prefer conibears. Um, so that is a Creek set that I like. There's a lot of other Creek sets you can do. That's the one I usually do is I look for those choke points. I look for the narrows and these Creek sets are where you're going to get a lot of incidentals. Any animal paddling downstream can get into that trap. Otter, muskrats, mink. Um, I've got friends that have caught bass and even trout on these. <laughs> so be mindful that there's going to be some incidentals because you're not targeting the animal. You're just finding a choke point and putting a trap there. So creek sets are really good because the beaver are moving up and down rivers and creeks and streams. So they're good to know. Again, if it's a big body of water, big river or big stream, I will probably go back to caster mounds and just set conibears along the bank. Um, but if there's a choke point, I will definitely capitalize on that. I'll definitely exploit that to my benefit. So creek sets are great. Den sets are the next one. And den sets are kind of like the the quintessential beaver trapping is when you find their dens and you find where their entrance to that den is. You're going to do a few things. There's a lot of different people on YouTube that trap. Um, Sam Woods Outdoors, The Meat Trapper, um, of course, Andrew Stanley from the Wild North. Uh, there's also a gentleman who I've talked about, I believe on the podcast before, 330 Maniac. And I love this guy's stuff because he's just, he knows trapping really well. He knows what he's doing really well. He knows his rights. He knows his laws. So he knows what he's doing really, really well. He knows his techniques. And his den set is what I use a lot. So if I, if you're trying to understand what I'm talking about here, go watch his videos on den sets on beaver trapping and you'll understand it. But again, we're going to take... Are, we're going to wait out if the water's shallow enough, uh, we're going to wait out and we're going to probe and find where their path is in and out of their entrance. And when we find the deepest part of that entrance, uh, that's where their belly's hitting the bottom. We're going to get a pole and this pole is going to be about as tall as we are, if not taller. And you're going to slide your pole, your trap on it. And all poles that you use to attach your traps, use dead wood. Don't use green, fresh wood because the beaver will eat it and you lose your trap. So use a dead pole bark free, preferably, and you're going to slide your trap down it. And then you're going to drive the trap, the pole into the muck offset from the middle of the, tra of the trail. You're going to go a few inches, basically you start to feel with your foot or your probe where the sides of the tra of the tra path are kind of starting to slope upwards, drive it in there so that the trap itself is dead center on that trail. And now it's basically a door, right? It's like a, it's like the classic saloon door. It can slide, it can swing frontward or backwards. The beaver can knock the trap out of the way. And so to prevent that, we get a diet, we get another pole and we slide it through diagonally. And I prefer to put it on the inside between the trap, uh, the trap pole 
and the entrance of the lodge. I don't want to have on the outside because they could potentially push it f away from them. Whereas with that diagonal pole resting against the pole, the main pole, the trap pole, uh, this is sounding more complicated because it's just audio. You can't visually see what I'm talking about. But when they push against the trap, those two poles push against each other. And so it stays solid. Again, we want our traps to be as secure and as solid as possible. So there's less chance of a mess up happening. And they go through and bam. Before you do that, of course, you want to make sure you wire off or cable off your trap, anchor it to something that's not the trap pull or that diagonal. You want to anchor it to a log or a piece of the den or a big branch or something. You want to anchor it elsewhere. So that's your, your den set. Uh, that's the number one den set. And you can use, like I, I, we talked about earlier, there's H brackets, which are just welded brackets that look like the letter H. And you can set those down if the water's shallow enough. If it's not shallow enough, you're basically going for a swim trying to get that thing stuck in there. And of course there's deep water brackets, but if you're doing like, let's say 15, 20 sets and they all need to be put on dens, cause beaver will put out a bunch of little colony dens, little satellite dens all over a body of water. And if you're trying to, you know, actually trap them, you got to put these traps at all their active dens. So there might be 20 of these you got to set. That means you got to bring 20 traps technically 25 because you always want to have a few backups in case something goes wrong and you need to bring brackets and you got to bring all these deep water brackets that are like seven feet long and you got to weld all those together. I'll just use a pole. I, I, oh, my cat's back. She's going to make some noise probably and probably start purring her and make some chirps or something. So if you hear some weird sounds, don't worry. It's just my cat. I'm not losing my mind. Like that big, like that big squelch she just made right there. Anyways, um, yeah, that's your, your den sets. So shoreline, caster mound sets, creek sets, and then your den sets. Those are your three main ones. But sometimes the den is out in open water. Sometimes, like deep open water, you just can't get down to the den where the entrance is. Or you can't find the entrance. Sometimes you can't find their feed raft or their den or necessarily where they're crossing over in spots, but you have open water. This is something that we find with big ponds, uh, where they're just crossing right down the middle of the pond and you just can't find a choke point, uh, or you can't find where their den is, but you're seeing them active out in the water. This is where we do what we call open water traps. One of them, which is, and there's a lot of varieties of them. And I want to make it very clear. There's a lot of different people that teach this stuff that, that, uh, that den set I was describing is uh, one that I learned years ago and then saw a person 330 maniac on YouTube demonstrate really, really well. This one that I'm talking about, I just learned a year ago, uh, when I was just skimming through the Scandinavian fur trapper and hunter's manual, um, by John S. Opdahl. And it's in the, you know, on page 213 of the book on the top left corner. And it's the most simple trap, most simple trap set. It's a brilliant design. Um, and it's great for open water. And so what it is, and you're going to get two logs that are about six to seven feet long. Uh, six seems to be working for me. Uh, and they're going to be made of dry dead wood. Remember, anytime you don't want beaver chewing on something, you don't use fresh wood. Don't use fresh poplar. Don't use fresh birch. Use dry dead wood. I'm using cedar because we've got a lot of down cedar since that big derecho back in the summer uh, or back in May. And yeah, that's, that's, what I'm using. And so what I do is I line them up, lay them into the shape of a V and the, the opening of the V should be about an inch and a half to two inches 
wider than the jaws of my trap. So I put my conbert trap in there and I go, okay, that's how wide they need to be. Here's the other end. And I cross them over each other and I mark it with charcoal. And then I use a saw and I cut those until they fit each other with long um, scarf joints. And they just lap together to each other. And then I'm just using like six inch nails, driving them through the of the logs. And if they then poke out in the other end, I just bend them over. Um, that's what I'm doing. You can, you know, just wire them together. You can uh, lash them together. You can drill holes through them and put bolts and nuts on them, whatever you want. And then right in the middle, like so measured out from toe to toe or toe to heel, and right in the middle, you're going to bolt on or wire on a bracket. And that bracket is going to be another piece of cedar wood about the same diameter as your two logs. So if you cut down a big, you know, 20 foot cedar that's dry and dead and you cut off six foot lengths, cut off another that's, let's say, I don't think you're going to need more than eight inches, but just see how wide it is in the middle and you're going to add that. I just drive in a couple of nails again. That's all you really need. And then that bracket is A, your anchor point for the anchor you're going to sink down in the water with a big rock or a piece of cinder block or whatever. Uh, and I'll use like aircraft cable that's got that coating on it. Uh, that seems to last really well because this is a fairly permanent set. This is something we're going to leave out season after season, set up in the fall. It'll get frozen up in the winter time. And then when comes spring, you either just kind of fix it up uh, after the ice goes out or you might not need to my experience you don't really have to fix them very often because just two logs with a bracket just floating and then they get frozen and then the ice shifts and then it unfreezes anyways um uh, the other point of that bracket is you're then going to wire on two pieces of very fresh poplar very green like you cut it just minutes before you set up the trap and then you have two nails one on each end sticking up at the mouth of the trap that are just there to kind of string your trap across and then you wire your trap to the raft that you've made you float it out there set the trap and those two green poplar poles are sticking up out of the water like five feet up a green poplar is like candy to a beaver b this can be a place where you dab a little bit of beaver caster on the very top of them and blast that scent all over the pond, and the beaver come cruising in, looking for that extent, that um, strange beaver, stranger danger kind of situation. And yeah, they can climb up on the raft from behind where the V, you know, intersects at the apex, but that's not really beaver's MO. They're going to try and find an entrance to get in closer, and of course, if they see pop, they're going to be like, food, so they want to get to the food. And where's the opening? Where your trap is. It's a brilliant design from Russia. Don't dive into any politics there, Caleb. But it's a phenomenal, phenomenal, simple trap. Really simple trap. Um, and those are the kinds of traps that I absolutely love. Uh, the simpler they are, the, 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 the simpler they are, the more efficient they are to make and the more simple they are to assemble and the more simple they are to set up in the right place and fiddle with. You don't have to do a lot of fiddling with a trap that is simple. And so that kind of Russian open water floating V, and it's on page 213 in John S. Opdahl's Scandinavian Fur Trapper and Hunter's Manual. It's, a, again, a great, great resource of information is in that book. So kind of talked about all the trap sets that I use for beaver. Let's dive into another critter. So the next critter we're going to talk about is the other animal that I'm trapping a lot of right now, and that's raccoon. Uh, in the early season, I target raccoon a lot. 
mainly because they are common and my main focus with them is population management to decrease the risk of disease. Uh, raccoon tastes really good and their fur is really nice, but I'm focusing on trapping raccoons specifically because of population management. That is my main focus. Um, raccoons are social animals and will share dens with relatives and even friends or even strangers. So they, you can sometimes have 15, 20 raccoons living in a den together if it's a big enough den. And due to this, disease can hit them really hard. In my area, distemper has been wreaking havoc uh, for years now. Rabies was for about five years, but in the last three years, I've seen very little sign of rabies, which I believe is due to them simply dying off enough for the disease to be less noticeable. These diseases seem to come in waves. So for me, as a steward of the ecosystem I happen to live within, I want to reduce their population to a, uh, to a low enough number, a uh, low enough extent that disease is less prone. We have a lot of dogs in this neighborhood. We have a lot of cats in this region. We have a lot of kids in this area. On the weekend of the powwow, the Hiawatha powwow, um, right in front of my house while I'm getting all my yard cleaned up because I'm the last house before you get to the powwow, um, my sister pulls up and says, hey, uh, there's a raccoon wandering around in circles in broad daylight at like 1130 in the morning right in front of the church, right beside the house. That's distemper. And there was kids all over the road. There was people everywhere. And yes, distemper doesn't get carried by, uh, doesn't get, uh, doesn't infect people, but we can carry it to our pets. And if that raccoon wasn't distemper, that could be rabies. And again, it's just too much of a risk to the kids. So I trap a lot of raccoon. Um, and that's kind of where I am uh, with, with my trapping. I trap a lot of raccoon in uh, October, November, December, and then I trap a lot of them again uh, in the wintertime when I'm setting for a fisher because they'll sometimes wake up, wander out, and fall into my fisher traps. Um, and that's just the way it is. That's, that, that's just how trapping is. You're going to have incidentals. So with the, the desire to trap raccoon, and also raccoons can taste really, really good. Like I've had raccoon that tastes like roast beef. Uh, and I also a raccoon, the, the one raccoon I got last year, uh, we're pretty sure it had been living on like Tim Horton's donuts or something, because when I rendered out its oil, it's fat, it, the whole house smelled of like cinnamon donuts, like cinnamon was a strong smell in the air. And that raccoon re its fat reeked of, of cinnamon. Uh, we never got around to eating the meat on that one. That one went out to the trap line the same day that I rendered the fat. But man, did it smell nice. I kind of wish I had kept some of the meat. So, and their fur again is very good fur. Um, for scouting, this is a lot easier than with beaver. Um, we're going to look for their droppings and tracks. And that's the main thing. If you have someone that's telling you, hey, I've got a raccoon problem. And that's kind of like what happens for me. I don't trap raccoon in the wilderness very often. I'm trapping them more in my neighborhood here in the community. We're a rural reserve. We're not in downtown or anything like that. We're not a suburb. Um, but we have a lot of people and they'll be like, Hey, uh, I've got raccoon problems. They're, they're causing issues with me and my, my pets, my kids, this and this and this. And I'm not blaming the raccoon for that. The raccoons just doing what they're supposed to do. What I am saying is their interactions are negative. They, they're having in, negative interactions with the people and the people's kids and animals. So I go in and they're like, we're not sure if it's a raccoon. We, our trash has been torn open a few times. Could be a cat, could be a dog, but I think it's a raccoon. 
I'm going to go walk around. I'm going to look for tracks. I'm going to look for scat. And if I can't find any tracks or scat, I'm going to say to them, hey, do you mind if I buy a bag of play sand, like playground sand, and just put it in a spot over near where all this activity is happening? And then if they say yes, I'll go get a bag. It's like six bucks. Spread the sand out until it's about an inch thick in one area. And then I'll just put a marshmallow right in the middle of it. And the next day or within two nights, I will know what animals are coming around. Is it a fox? Is it a coyote? Is it a dog? Is it a raccoon? You'll know because the tracks are nice and clear on that sand. If I have no other evidence, that's what I'll do. That's my scouting for raccoon. Like that's really all there is to it. Um, now what I want to do is figure out where their toilet spots are, their potential denning sites and where they're getting food. My goal is to then intercept them between these locations. So that's my scouting with traps. It's a little different than with my beaver trapping beaver trapping. I'm like exclusively trying to just kill them. I want them dead. I want them killed very quickly and humanely and efficiently with raccoon, especially if I want to be able to consume the animal or bring the animal near my home where I have dogs and cats and everything else. And yes, all my animals are vaccinated as am I. Um, I even get rabies shots once in a while because of the trapping I do. Um, I cannot discern easily from a kill trap if that animal was healthy or not. It's, it's, it's doable, especially if you take parts to a lab. But at that point, what's the point? Um, with diseases like rabies and distemper being in the population, I often prefer to use live traps for raccoons to see what their habits are like, to see for myself if they exhibit any symptoms. If they're acting funny, if they're acting bold, if they're acting aggressive, I can kind of see, you can you can tell when, a ra- when an animal's sick, when they're alive. You can see it. Kill traps are great, and I do use them on occasion for raccoon, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but it becomes harder to discern if I caught a disease or a healthy raccoon. So my preference are dog-proof raccoon traps. And talking about YouTube channels earlier, people that show stuff on YouTube, there's a great channel on raccoon trapping. The guy really drives it hard and does a very good job of it called Sam Woods Outdoors. I don't agree with everything he says. He knows his raccoon trapping better than I do, and he uses a lot of uh, coil spring traps that are under boards of wood with a hole in it and the raccoon reaches in and gets their paw caught. And he's pointed out a lot of the fallible aspects of dog-proof traps. I still prefer dog-proof traps just because we're I'm trapping in areas around people's homes. Sometimes I'll just use a live box trap, like the classic cage trap that everybody sees at the, at the farmer supply or tractor supply. But I prefer the dog-proof traps and then I can come by with a small caliber weapon, or I can bring a, this is going to sound horrible. I know, but a trapping bat. Yep. That's exactly what it sounded like. A trapping bat. Um, they're more humane than you think, especially when you know how to swing them. Um, anyways, um, the dog proof trap is my preference. Cause then I can see how healthy the animal is and they, I can carry a lot of those on my ATV or in a truck it's a lot harder for me to bring a bunch of live traps and set them on at a lot of different people. If there's a raccoon infestation happening in the neighborhood, I need to be able to put out a lot of traps. Simple as that. And it's just more portable to bring the dog-proof traps. A dog-proof trap is a trap that requires the trigger to be pulled, not stepped on. And because of that, 
an animal that grasps at bait or grasps the trap trigger is what's going to set it off. If a dog sticks their tongue in there or they start pawing at it, they're not going to set the tra- trap off. Very low likelihood. Um, the only other animal that usually becomes an incidental in these uh, dog-proof traps are opossums, which makes sense. They can grasp. But cats and dogs, not likely. What I'll do with these cylindrical dog-proof traps is I'll drive them into the ground, I'll anchor them to the proper anchor point, and then I will f- set the trap and fill it with dog kibble. Which is antithetical to everything, we're counterintuitive to everything we're talking about, how it's dog-proof, we're filling with dog food. Uh, and then I put, if I can find it in the area, I'll find like a tin can or I'll find a styrofoam cup, something that's been debris left out. And I'll cover the trap with that for a couple of reasons. A, to keep the rain out because the last thing you want in a dog-proof trap is mushy, wet bait. You don't want that. Um, do not use any wet bait or sticky bait or goopy bait in a dog-proof trap. It will gunk up the trap mechanisms and it will not work right so it's keeping the dog kibble dry from rain or dew or whatever second thing raccoons are very prone to investigating because they're used to looking for food with their hands and they get curious from things so when they see a tin can and they smell food in the area They're going to go check around that tin can. They're going to go look around that cup. They're going to look around that refuse. Um, And then what I do to lure them in, because dog kibble doesn't have a lot of scent, I put down fish oil. And this is not the fish oil that you're seeing at the health food stores. I'm telling you that right now. Um, (laughs) It's kind of gross. Um, People do it a lot with salmon. Uh, I do it with round goby because they're an invasive species in my area and we got a lot of them. Uh, you catch the fish, you gut them, gills and all, get everything out of there that's not meat. And then you're going to chop up everything else and put it into a container. And I'll do like, you know, like a pound of fish, skin, meat, everything that's going to have oil in it. Chop it up into little cubes. The finer you can chop it up, the better, but you don't want to make it like a puree. You just want to have chunks. Uh, throw that into a big jar, fill that jar almost two thirds to three quarter full. And then you're going to just take a sock or cheesecloth and a, something that can lock it down tight, like a zip tie, so that animals can't rip it off. And you're going to leave it in the sun for weeks and weeks and months. And you're going to let it get as stinky and gross as possible. And you'll see this film building up on the top. And that gunky film on top of the water is the putrefied, very disgusting oil that has rotted out of that fish anaerobically. And you're going to scoop that all out with a stick, uh, a tongue depressor, even though I don't even want to think about the, ter- the word tongue when I'm talking about this stuff, um, anything, and put it into a sealed container and you're going to be wearing gloves when you do this. Some people, they'll pour it into a squirt bottle, like an old ketchup bottle or something, that works just fine. Uh, that's actually my preference if I can get it. And I'm just going to fill it up with all that oil. And... Then you squirt that around the area that you're going to be trapping for a raccoon. Uh, if I got like a styrofoam cup that I found in the trash there, and that's my lid, I'll squirt a little bit on there. If there's some brush or sticks nearby, I'll dredge them over and squirt them. Uh, I'll even just squirt the ground around where the trap is. You don't want to spray it on the bait, A, because you're in a dog-proof trap and you don't want any wet stuff in there. B, 
it doesn't actually taste good. It just smells interesting to raccoons. A lot of people use salmon oil. You can also just buy salmon oil online and use that from Trapper Supplies. Um, but yeah, you want to very, very carefully handle that stuff. You don't want to get it on your skin. It is it, That smell never leaves. It's so gross. Um, but it works really, really well at attractant, as an attractant, as a lure. And the dog-proof trap is filled with kibble, two-thirds to full. And what's going to happen is they're going to come along, they're going to smell the salmon oil, they're going to be like, oh, what is that? What is going on? Oh, there's a lid over there. There's a can over there. Flip it over. Ooh, kibble. And they will just sit there and eat piece by piece kibble. And they'll just eat and eat and eat all the way down. They get to the bottom, they see more kibble underneath the trigger, and they're like, oh, God, I just got to pull this thing out of the way. And they lift on it and snap. Not snap, but bang. The trap catches around their arm, high up on the forearm, not down around the, the fingers of the paws. It's going to catch up mid forearm on the animal. And it's a lot of pressure, but it's not enough to maim the animal. And so this is a live trap. And with live traps, I'm checking them on a regular basis. If I know I have live traps set uh, that are hold traps, not like a cage trap, like a live cage trap, you can leave them overnight and come check them in the morning kind of thing. But when it comes down to a live trap that's caught them by the foot or the arm or the, in their, yeah, in their case, an arm, but in other animals' cases, the leg, I want to check them at sunrise, sunset, and sometimes middle of the night. I want to check them whenever I can. Of course, if I'm doing this on someone's private property, I want their consent and I want them to know that I'll be pulling in and they might hear uh, an animal get killed. <laughs> if it's a box trap, I'll just leave until morning and then I'll bring the raccoon back to my place and handle them however I need. Um, displacing animals by putting them into a new habitat is not great for the animal. It's not great for the local wildlife. Um, moving a raccoon from one neighborhood out into the country, that raccoon will be back in two days or they will be causing problems elsewhere, getting so stressed out that they don't thrive or survive very well. My recommendation, uh, is dispatching. As, as cruel as that is, that's my recommendation. Now... That's not the only way I trap raccoon. Um, we're going to, we're going to get into that. Um, I will sometimes use conibears bears on raccoon. Um, what happens though is not me targeting raccoon. Uh, I trap fisher on my, on my property. I've, I've got enough space to trap fisher in my, in my locale. And I will use 160 conibears. bears. The, the 160 conibear is powerful enough to kill a raccoon, powerful enough to kill any animal that gets its head inside that trap. It's a very powerful trap. They're great on muskrat. They're great on mink. They're great on fisher, though. It's my, it's my number one way to trap fishers with the 160 conibear. When you set a, a fisher trap, it's also a raccoon trap. It they, they are falling for the same bait. They're, for some reason, they're attracted to the same lure and they both will go into the same kind of trap. So 160 is great because it will catch and kill a raccoon, but it's still small enough to catch a small, fast-moving fisher or a mink that gets in there. Very rare do you see a mink in where uh, fishers are, but it happens. Um, that is like the big thing for me is I will set fisher traps in like now, and most of the fall I'll be bagging raccoon out of that trap. Like every few days, there'll be a, a raccoon in one of those trap sets. And then as soon as the snow hits the ground, there's like a foot of snow, then I'm getting fishers in the same sets. 
And then sometime in uh, the late season, you'll have a thaw, like near the closing of the season, you'll have a thaw and the raccoons come back out and bam, same trap is getting raccoons now. So I do kill trap raccoons on occasion, but they're not the main target. The main target is the, my one or two fishers that I'm allotted to catch. And I end up catching raccoons and that's okay. That's totally fine. Um, we can dive more and more into all the other traps I do on, on mink and muskrat. We can dive into a whole lot of other ones, but this episode has been going for quite a while. We have a lot of information already on here and I always hear from people, why do you make the podcast so long? Cause there's a lot of information. That's why, like, that's it. It's not cause I want to, I don't want to sit here talking for three and a half hours. It's just, that's how long it takes to convey all the information we have about that subject. Sometimes it takes even longer but we just don't record all of it. So yeah, um, that's the end of this episode on content. Uh, next up is me thanking our patrons on Patreon. I got to give a huge thanks to all of you as well. So I'm going to do our little send off now. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Hopefully you learned a little bit more about how trapping works. Some of the things you have to do to prepare for the trapping season, the things you got to do while you're trapping, uh, but also potentially see them, why I'm such a manic lunatic. Um, I want to thank all of you for listening. This was a good long episode, uh, with a lot of information and a lot of details that were hard to convey on an audio platform when we need visual learning for a lot of this stuff. So I want to thank all of you for that, for being patient with me as I explain these things at three in the morning. But I especially have to thank our patrons, people like David, Matt, Carrie, Charlotte, Tyler, Renee, all these amazing people, Paul, Nikki, all these amazing people who keep this podcast moving forward and keeping our content moving forward. We are trying to move forward with a lot of ways to support you back on Patreon. So some special stuff's coming up. We're going to be announcing in the next couple of days, uh, on Patreon, as well as a few things that we're going to be doing very special for our patrons on Patreon. A lot of kickbacks coming back to you here in October, late October and early November. So if you want some of those kickbacks as well and you want to support us, it can be as cheap as a cup of, a cup of coffee a month or as much as you want for even more content and more support your way in kickbacks. So go on over to patreon.com slash Canadian bushcraft for more content.